what's up everybody this is the first recording of nuclear barbarians of this year other than the bonus episode i did on that piece i wrote for the american mind and as the first recording i am i'm back in the lab with john and we're here to talk about the end of the machine in the garden this is the final installment i think as we're recording this i have not released the second to last installment. So that'll come out the week we record this. This will come out a little bit later. Regardless, here we are, end of January. We have finished the book. How you doing, John? You know, for the first time in a long time, I'm feeling pretty good when we sit down to record. So, you know. Hell yeah, dude. Now we know the episode's <laughs> going to suck. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, this is not going to be good. <laughs> the spell has been broken. So... <laughs> We're here to talk about a few things. Obviously, our closing thoughts on this trip we've taken with Leo Marx because we finished the book, but also the last little section on the machine, which is on the vernacular uh, aspect of the machine. So if you remember from the last episode, we talked about the transcendental and tragic. And so for him, that's really going to be in Emerson and in Melville and Hawthorne. Um we can talk about maybe a little bit later how conspicuous it is that Walt Whitman does not appear a lot in here, which is, I think, very surprising for me personally. But he wants to close with the vernacular. He's going to talk about sort of two main people, really. I mean, Henry James kind of makes an appearance, but it's not really, I would say. It's more the other Henry Adams and Mark Twain's Huck Finn. And John and I were talking before we recorded in the close readings that we get here of Huck Finn and then Henry Adams, and then especially in the conclusion, Garden of Ashes of The Great Gatsby are like phenomenal close readings. <laughs> like if you've read any of those books, if you've read The Great Gatsby or if you read Huck Finn, it behooves you to read what Leo Marx has to say about them. But all in all, it's actually kind of confusing what he means by this vernacular mode of dealing with the problem of the machine. Yeah. Like I can't really think of anything that comes to mind that ties all of these authors together in a way that also distinguishes them from the tragic and transcendental modes. It felt like a hazy category and I don't want to be like, well, because I didn't understand it, it's not really meaningful, but like, that's a possibility that it's just yeah. sort of like, it's here to encompass the people who came after the other two things that maybe had more to like recommend them as actual groupings. I mean, you can kind of just like, yeah, I get the idea of Mark Twain dealing with this in a vernacular way. Like it makes sense in a way that I can't describe to you, but I don't know how useful that is like for analysis, you know, so. Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell because vernacular is Mark Twain's greatest gift. You know, he invents so much of American vernacular or at least instantiated in print that, I mean, he's still sort of with us in how we talk and act and think today. <clears throat> yeah. But how that overlaps with the machine is, I think, a little confounding. So I'm going to talk here a little bit about Mark Twain and what Leo Marx says about it and what I think we can kind of keep in mind about Mark Twain when we're thinking about what does his engagement with the idea of the machine, particularly the steamboat, have to say about the American 
response to the pastoral in industrialization. So Mark Twain grows up in Hannibal, Missouri, as I'm sure a lot of people know. Missouri was a very sort of fractious place, as was Southern Illinois. These were places that were met with a lot of tension by the Civil War border. Borderlands always were. You know, so like Northern Virginians, for example, have really had to be talked into joining the Confederacy because their adjacency to the North made that a way more difficult proposition than it was for somebody who was in the Deep South. You know, Alabama just had less to worry about in terms of its commercial relationships, its familial relationships, all of these other things. And the same goes for Missouri. But because it flanks the Mississippi, and the Mississippi is sort of the Cuisatz Hyderac of America, blessed be the coming and going of him. You know, it's sort of like trees out under everything, every waterway in this nation, almost coast to coast from the Rockies, at least to the East Coast. It's this huge artery for trade. And back when he was Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain undertook to become a steamboat pilot. And the steamboat is really seen, though there were earlier iterations of it across the pond in England, but it doesn't really commercially become viable until Americans work on it. And it becomes this huge unlock of industrial power and logistics up and down the Mississippi. And so when Mark Twain becomes a steamboat pilot, he sort of initiated into this early world of travel and commerce up and down America that was very rare before that. I mean, you can read what it's like for people who, you know, Union soldiers who marched south for the first time. They had never even seen some of them, a Black person before in their lives. They had never been south. They had never even been east, for that matter. The ones who go west into New Mexico, I've talked about this, I think, on the show before, like totally freaked out. They were like, what the hell is this? This is crazy. You know, so all that to say is he is inducted into this new industrial realm that showcases perhaps the polyphonic quality of America, uh, how different it is, but it also creates in Leo Marx's mind sort of this parallax view of the natural world. And one view is that of the passenger of the steam, the steamboat, who sees the natural beauty of the world and is impressed by its basically pastoral idol. And then there's that of the pilot, the one who is running the machine. And the pilot, as Mark Twain sort of spells out in Life on the Mississippi, almost can't enjoy that quality anymore because he can now read the book of the river and the river is a manual for navigating it. So what appears is beautiful, all of these different little things like this eddy over here, the way part of the stream cuts in over there, you know, this branch here, these are all things that now mean different courses of action for the pilot. So there are two divergent views of the same thing. And this, I think, is the difficulty of living in a modern industrialized society is that these things are sort of overlaid onto each other. And Mark Twain really investigates that in Life on the Mississippi. 
And Life on the Mississippi is also retrospective. It begins as a series of pieces for William Dean Howells over at The Atlantic uh, called Old Times. And it's really Mark Twain sort of reliving his early days. But what you have to understand is that his time on the Mississippi ends with the outbreak of the Civil War, which cancels commerce up and down it because you now can't go south. There are lots of vicious battles that are fought around it. I think I think Grant does his first successful siege against its Vicksburg along the Mississippi, right? Where he sieges them for so long, he gets bored and gets drunk, but then eventually <laughs> takes the city and shuts down the Western campaign. And that's what brings him east. But you know, there's all sorts of river fighting that happens up and down there. So Mark Twain actually quits and joins a Confederate volunteer force for two weeks, camps in the rain, hates it, and then hears that there's a very successful Northern general who's marching on their position. And he quits and leaves and lights out for the territory like Huck Finn to join his brother out west. And that general marching on his position was, of course, Ulysses S. Grant. And Grant would later become a friend of Mark Twain's, and Mark Twain would help him get his memoirs published at the end of his life. So there's some nice little historical anecdote there. Anecdote there. But what we need to understand about the Civil War is that the Civil War is, of course, many things to America. It's the refounding of America and Reconstruction afterwards. It is also an industrial leap forward for the country. Right, It has all of these wars, often have these centralizing tendencies and stuff like that. That all happens uh, up north, especially, and which isn't to say that the armories in Virginia weren't incredibly impressive. They absolutely were. But most of the industrial capital was north of the Mason-Dixon. And Mark Twain comes back to the Mississippi after the Civil War, after it settled. He was always sort of embarrassed about his time in the Confederacy, even though it was just for two weeks and he quit. But it was a volunteer force that didn't even see action. And he was, as one biographer described him, an abolitionist after there was nothing left to abolish. And so that sort of links the trauma of the Civil War with how industrialization rationalizes the steamboat after the Civil War, because it totally changes. It is no longer the booming industry it was when he returns to finish life on the Mississippi as an older man. And you can read through the lines, Mark Twain's own frustrations with the divides between North and South and his own complicated moral struggles with America during and after the Civil War. And you have to be very close attention when you read that book because the actual civil war barely even gets mentioned. It gets one chapter that has one paragraph. And then the narrative picks up again in the 1880s. So, right? So he's sort of hiding it a little. That is why that helps inform, I think, Leo Marx's reading of what it means for the river rafting that Jim and Huck undergo. They're sort of retreating, they're moving out of civilization for two different reasons. It means two different things to both of them. Obviously, Jim is a slave. So civilization has one connotation from him, which is unfreedom. And for Huck, it has a kind of, rather than radical unfreedom, a certain level of constraint, right? And they forge this friendship and they are trying to get Jim to Cairo, Illinois. I mean, it's spelled like Cairo, but you know how we are. 
And that's because Illinois is not a slave state. It's part of the Northwestern Ordinance, so it had already done away with its slave population way back when, right? Illinois was a little bit different than the rest of the Midwest. It slowly phased its slave economy out. Regardless, Jim could have been free there. And that is the disaster of them in the fog, missing Cairo, and then the river goes south. And what is this going to mean for both of them? And so you see this almost Virgilian engagement with the corruption of American political society at the time as they take their raft landward. And after it's split by a steamboat, right, crucially. So I think like if we're thinking about what the vernacular might mean for Leo Marx is I think, and maybe when we tie this to Henry Adams here in a bit, I'm gonna stop talking because I've really been dominating this. I think what we're starting to get is that rather than the interrupted idol becoming part of the pastoral experience like it is for Hawthorne, like it is for Emerson, and like it is for Melville, we're instead starting to get the assumption of the presence of the machine as integrated into the pastoral realm. If you read Huck Finn, the steamboat never really fully interrupts and it is never fully absent. Very different than the Sleepy Hollow journals that we began this book with way back when in 1844. Even though, crucially, Huck Finn is set closer to Sleepy Hollow because it's antebellum, but it is written and it's completed in 1884. So I think that's what might be meant by long way of explanation of what's going on here, John. I'm sorry I dominated. Tell me what you think. No, that was fascinating. And was a lot of context that I didn't quite have, not to that level of detail. So I think that was well worth it. What I noticed a lot, particularly in this section of the book, was when they're making the distinction between the passenger and the pilot and their modes of engagement with the world around the steamboat. He brings it up here and earlier, but just that for the passenger, that they're trained in landscape paintings. And he doesn't ever really dwell on that too much, but I think it's interesting to think about the fact that both of these ways of experiencing are learned, like equally artificial, you might say, and that Twain associated this passenger painting style of experience with the effete cultured Eastern mm. urban society. It made me think in a way like, it, it got pretty close to Heidegger, which isn't something we really need to get into, but I think maybe it would be interesting of just mm -hmm. like, because it, well, it made me think of Kant, who really does bear on this in terms of like, this was sort of underlying their thinking somewhat debatably, but there's like this Kantian idea of like a very practical mode of thinking and wisdom or whatever versus other forms of thought. And I think that's coming out in the analysis of using categories like aesthetic or practical or whatever just in and of themselves are a pretty like modern thing modern in the sense of like starting with mm -hmm. the enlightenment and i just think it bears mentioning because there's a tendency to just sort of subsume the like enjoyment of nature or the idol 
into a kind of like natural way of thinking and categorizing it. Like it's the natural versus the obviously artificial machine when really it's an equally artificial mode of like thought and experience artificial, mm. just in the sense that you had to learn it. Like you and I obviously have like looked at, you know, like a vast array of stars over an ocean or something and been like, you know, like that's kind of crazy, like beautiful, <laughs> but also exhilarating and terrifying and sublime mm-hmm. or whatever. And like, to some extent I can say that I believe that is somehow inherent. Like any human being would feel something akin to that under such conditions, unless they were preoccupied in some way. But I can't say that they would experience it exactly like I do because I've spent my whole life being trained by images since I first started seeing Mm. screens, you know, essentially like movies, TV, early 2000s desktop wallpaper websites. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's video game, like video uh, games environments boxes. yeah yes. exactly like look up in morrowind and you see the two planets or whatever orbiting your planet or i'm thinking of like in doom like the doom. twisted faces that like make up the sky and stuff like that yeah all totally still to this day i'll like see a screenshot of doom and i'll look at like the distant like landscape that they put in the background of the level and i'll just be in like kind of a reverie like thinking about it oh dude yeah same <laughs> that and half-life right like that's the <laughs> But this is all to say that, like, we've lived very, very image-saturated lives, and I think that has had a distinct influence on the way with which we then go out and, like, <clears throat> experience this, you know, natural, physical world. And, like, an aesthetic reverie is just, to some extent, a highly learned state. And I think that's worth bearing in mind when we go forward and try to think about, like, the way that the machine and the garden are used today, or at least the way in which we look at more recent writings on them, Gatsby and company, that we're really, it's much easier to think like, oh, especially in Virgil, like this is just literally the natural world versus the city of Rome. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that we really have anything that could even be close to that anymore, at least not in our experience, just because things have changed so drastically. Like for them, they had paintings and they had an upbringing that taught them to appreciate images and like the landscape as an image and like a thing you make images out of. Mm -hmm. And for us, there's that, but much weirder. And I think more intensified just in terms of like sheer quantity. Well, I would say, so I I think in a very strange way, one of the things he says about Huck Finn, like Huck Finn, he spends this time, Leo Marx does doing this close read of this frankly gorgeous description of life on the river that Huck relays but he points out that huck is neither the passenger nor the pilot in mm-hmm. it both rivers are the same river right so he's in his naivete he almost and his and in his vernacular he almost has this sort of like husserlian desedimented experience of, <laughs> of what that is that's me doing like a deep cut right the year crisis of the european sciences right there everybody go read that essay by edmund husserl it's worth it but so he's leo marx writes his willingness to accept the world as he finds it without anxiously forcing meanings upon it lends substance to the magical sense of peace the passage evokes that is really husserlian now that i so that is like the epoch. Eh? So before, I'm not going to get too much into that, but I think we do the same thing, except we do it with the machine and the garden at once, right? And just 
think about how often you see imaginary machines. Mm -hmm. Just think about the idea of a Gundam. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? All these things that look machinic that you can even, I mean, especially if we're going to like lean into the anime thing here, they do like very explicit renderings of like the inner workings of all of this stuff. Right? Mm -hmm. and that has obviously had a huge impact on American gaming and cartooning itself. But like, who knows if any of this stuff is actually physically possible, right? It is like untutored in its own way, in mm -hmm. the same way that we would approach the pastoral. And I think that sort of weirdness, like we have the same distance from the garden as we do from the machine at this point that we have like levered up so deep in energy density and technical sophistication that we're like without expertise sort of walled off from any sort of understanding. That's, that's yeah. like maybe my hot take coming out of this. No, definitely. I agree with you on that completely. And like the level to which too, if you want to talk about something like a Gundam, that it's very organic in nature in terms of synthesized it, with the man yeah exactly it's animated like it's clearly a machine but it's also clearly not like any machine that we see existing in a way like the motions and the way that it looks are much more fluid than the mit dog robot is currently and like much yeah. less like unsettling <laughs> for sure there's something like you're not disturbed by the gundam <laughs> as it moves in the same way, like the, the dog robot is kind of like listening to a square wave versus a sine wave. Like one just makes you feel horrible inside and the other <laughs> one is like, <laughs> like, I think there's something to that on some level, but it's definitely almost impossible to say that these are really distinct realms so much as that like we have these admixtures of them that take on different roles for us because you can have a highly, you could have a very technologically infused just in terms of like pure aesthetics, like pastoral for sure. I'm sure oh. it exists. We could talk about a lot of them. Dude, absolutely. I mean, shit, I generate a lot of those with AI for the cover yeah, exactly. for these episodes, right? And I, it's pretty easy how I do that. I'm like, nuclear actors and blah, 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 comma, Frank Rosetta painting. Yeah. Right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's how I do almost all of those, you know? It's comma, Frank Frazetta painting. So I think, yeah, there, there's that aspect to it. I, I would also say that I've been, I'm actually really taken with the idea of the Gundam as a sort of way to think about this now and like what our relationship to the machine really is and sort of the pastoral as part of the machine world. I mean, I think that this is what things like the phrase nobody uses anymore, like Anthropocene could have helped us understand, except it was deployed almost exclusively to justify stupid climate policy and mm -hmm. like not actually think aesthetically about the world at all, except in the most anti-human unhelpful terms possible yeah. right? <laughs> you know? uh, but this is all to say that like when we when we pivot to henry adams here when henry adams goes first he goes to the chicago world's fair which is the biggest demonstration of alternating current ever it's what creates the alternating current industry. It's what wins Westinghouse, the Niagara Falls contract with Tesla, and basically puts the nail in the coffin for 
Thomas Edison's direct current dream. So Henry Adams is there, right? He's the grandson of John Quincy Adams. And so the great grandson of the founding father, John Adams. And I love this. In the introduction by, I forget the critic's name, to the Library of America edition of the education of Henry, Henry Adams, he describes Henry Adams as a man who is seemingly tortured by time, which I just think is like so perfect. So he has these experiences at these world fairs, including the one in Paris in 1900, which is also another huge de debut of the power of electrification. And he sort of does this juxtaposition between the Virgin being the Virgin Mary and the dynamo. So in other words, this is very turn of the century like, what if the medieval was a more complete, holistic, pastoral world than what we have now? Gesture. So that type of world and that of the dynamo. And he sets up all these dichotomies, right? So it's like the utilitarian versus the beautiful, the practical versus, you know, the excessive love, love versus power. power. Yeah. One, yeah. Love and power is the main one. And... He, Henry Adams does a really great job of intuiting that Americans are basically going to worship the machine for a while. And he's not wrong about that, right? Just think about uh, how often in our political discourse, like if you're listening to this probably today, you have thought at some point within the last few weeks, well, what we need is more technological innovation. Congrats. <laughs> you are of the machine. And that's not a knock. I'm just, I do that too, you know? And that's something that Henry Adams preempted, but he wondered what it would cost us. And he wondered if there weren't hard trade-offs between this more holistic medieval world and the world that we live in today. And I don't think, I mean, similar to Thomas Carlyle, I think he's willing to allow for, it's been a while since I've read his chapters in The Education of Henry Adams, but he's willing to, I think, acknowledge that there are great improvements of life. But as we've returned to over and over again, like at some point, the utilitarian answers stop being profound or helpful for thinking about these things, because then you're like, what is all of this for? And it's like, well, it's for the reduction of suffering and stuff like that. And that's nothing to sniff at. But it seems like as a culture, the reduction of suffering is not that meaningful. Right? It may be materially consequential and important, but at an experiential level, it seems to lack a certain level of meaning that I think Henry Adams would ascribe to the Virgin. And so maybe this is another twist in the vernacular that Leo Marx is gesturing to. So you have sort of the untutored Huck Finn, and then you have the highly sophisticated Henry Adams juxtaposed here at the end. And what's common to both of them is that there seem there is an acknowledgement of dichotomy, even if Huck manages to synthesize it just by sort of this pure looking. And then there is this sort of reintroduction of the tragic element from Melville and Hawthorne and Emerson that arrives at Adams. But the only difference is it takes the machine for granted. And I think that's a shift in register that marks a shift in industrial development in America. There's a big difference between, you know, the locomotive roaring past Walden in the mid 19th century and then attending World Fair in Chicago at the end of that century.
I mean, first of all, like what we talked about with the Civil War, there's been this huge mechanized shift, a huge sense of the catastrophe of industry and sort of the first rupture, the first break from a type of honor culture that lived within certain military paradigms that were closer to an agrarian world than an industrialized one, right? So the Civil War, people talk about it as almost like the prequel to what the West is going to experience in World War I. So I think that's a shift in, in register here. And then when we do Garden of Ashes, when we get to the conclusion here, the epilogue, the relationship to the pastoral is totally inverted in that the machine is sort of assumed the first car accident ever in American letters is in The Great Gatsby. Imagine that. And my buddy Andrew Plimpton pointed that out to me. People know him from the show. I do the movie reviews with him. And the machine is definitely taken for granted. And the idea of setting up life in the new world becomes this sort of like core cultural memory that still creates the American character and allows Gatsby to think that he can recreate himself along the coast where those ancestors would have landed. And so we are always born back against the past, right? Like the tide. And so this is an enduring part of the American character. However, it seems to operate as this strange sort of memory, which is why Nick Carraway, the narrator, when he retreats back to his home in the Midwest, it's very important he's from the Midwest. He can't really retreat from the way that America has changed. It's more perfunctory than it is Huck Finn lighting out for the territory. Because by the time the Jazz Age rolls around, I mean, the frontier has been dead for 30, 40 years. Yeah, it, it's almost like a, it's gestural, but that's all. Like, yeah, gestural is the perfect he knows word as well as we do that he's not going anywhere, really. He's not escaping. It's just, it must be this way. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, it's sort of what else can you do? I mean, I think that there would be a great way to juxtapose if anybody wants to do like a fun project where you read two short novels and think about them. Um, pairing William Maxwell's Midwestern classic, So Long, See You Tomorrow, which is one of the greatest American novels of the 20th century with The Great Gatsby. I think we do a good job to elucidate the difference between the Midwest and the East and also conflicting narratives around the rural versus the urban and American memory. So just an idea. Hang your head on that. But you and I were talking, this book ends after a, a fantastic close reading of The Great Gatsby, which we're not going to fully get into here because then this would just be a conversation about The Great Gatsby. Worth it, but not what we're up to. He ends by saying, anyway, all of these aesthetic problems need to be resolved by politics, which is sad. But if you read the afterword, it makes sense. So, you know, Leo Marx, who died a few years ago, is in college during the Great Depression, writes this book during the 40s. He's a leftist. I mean, this is when most American academics, at least in his neck of the woods, 
were either New Deal progressives or straightforward socialists and communists. And he sort of explains, he historically orients that a bit. This is before the horrors of Stalinism are borne out. This is a huge crisis of faith for what capitalism can actually provide, et cetera. Of course, his mind changes on all sorts of stuff. It's also very interesting that um, he was taught by Daniel Borstein, who is one of the great popularizers of American history, who told, warned, warned Leo Marx. He's like, hey, just so you know, I'm a communist. And of course, you know, Borstein is now remembered as a famous American conservative historian. So some interesting trajectories arrive out of here. But ultimately, part of the reason that Leo Marx gestures towards politics at the end of this book is because at the time he's writing it, he is a committed socialist. And he really thinks that capitalism is rapacious and inegalitarian. And I think by implication will exhaust the natural world, right? This is a very common idea today. I used to believe this, et cetera, et cetera. And he thinks that you know, I guess some sort of rational planning is the only way to avoid this and to guarantee some level of equality. I'm not going to go to town on that style of thinking now, but that's just to contextualize why I think this ending sucks. And it's not for leftist ideological reasons, because I think it's a cop-out. And I think he does not actually take up the challenge of the machine the way he should. I mentioned before, Whitman feels conspicuously absent from this whole book, which is interesting because Whitman is, of course, especially post-Civil War, a hugely important writer, Leaves of Grass, seems to yoke the cosmos of democracy to the land and wilderness of America. And then Hart Crane, who was quoted earlier in the book as saying, if poetry can't assimilate the machine, then it's going to die, writes a piece on the Brooklyn Bridge. This is his major opus. That's a response to two pieces of American work. One is The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, and the other is Leaves of Grass. And he is taking a piece of mechanized infrastructure, the largest suspension bridge in the world, created by Washington Roebling, who again served in the Union Army uh, during the Civil War, and trying to figure out how to talk about the machine and America as an industrial democracy that grows out of the verdant leaves of grass that make up the democracy of Whitman. That's not the only thing he's up to. He's not doing propaganda, but he is aesthetically trying to reckon these things. And I think it's a shame that Leo Marx never fully takes this up. I think it's it's part of why this ending is so weak. I think what he says is we need to basically solve this problem through politics. And then by the time the 60s come around, right, this book gets published in 1960-something, and then a few years later, Silent Spring comes out. And the new left is doing, and the counterculture are doing whatever they want against the machine and the man. He basically thinks, oh no, now we have a, an actually radical pastoralism that is both political and aesthetic. And I find that like, super credulous for all sorts of reasons. And I find it insufficient, right? Like, I don't think that's actually an approximate, a good way to try to encounter our difficulties with talking about and living in a highly technological, industrialized world and what that means for our relationship with the natural world, which continues to pose problems. 
I agree with pretty much everything you said to just not belabor that point too much. But I think, you know, like it would have been worth maybe just dwelling on it aesthetically as your conclusion rather than saying help will come from elsewhere and then leaving. Because what got me thinking, it's interesting that we brought up Gundams because it just brought up for me like something that no one else may be able to identify with that much. But there is definitely a sense in which there is a craving for like a univocity of experience where things aren't like sundered into these distinct fractured parts that you have mm -hmm. to experience like crossing these thresholds. Like I remember when I was, I was going to community college and like taking a programming class that let out right as the sun was just finishing going down. So I would be sitting inside, like writing these really horrible Java programs for like a grade. And then I would come outside and I would see like the last gleams of like the light going over the mountains. Cause this community college is like on top of a mountain basically. And you're just like, wow, like this was all out here, like while I was in there. But it feels like really different, you know, like I can't even hardly put words to describe the experience, but just that they felt sundered mm -hmm. and like incommensurable to some extent. And I think that there is like, like I said, maybe not in all of us, or maybe it's not something I don't know, but I've talked to people and there's definitely a desire for like a way to bridge things into something that could feel like a unified life where you are doing one thing in one part of the day and another thing in another part of the day, and they somehow feel relevant to each other and related and not just like indulging in these things that are actually hostile to one another experientially, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. And I think that it's not exactly the conflict we're seeing when we read this book, but I think that that's, that has become this, at least in my experience, like, well Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I'm just going to actually quote from the book real quick towards the end, because I think... Oh, yeah, go ahead, for sure. So I, th I think this really points on it. So when he's talking about the difference between sort of the new left cultural movements out of which the environmental movement, which he's a booster of... I should say that I've read some of Leo Marx's other essays, and he's not stupid. <laughs> you know, like his book on like his little essay on the trajectory of nature in part informed my piece for the American mind. So I'm still a fan of Leo Marx, I, I just want to say. And I think that this is exactly right what he points out here about the difference between the new social movements of the 60s and 70s, which we're in the wake of now, and what the political movements of, let's say, the New Deal era or before were like then. And he says, the chief conflict they represent is not so much that which sets workers against owners as that was such a population against the quote unquote apparatus, which appears to dominate it. And I think that is, right? It's just think about all the anxiety we have about social media, that algorithm, how we talk about it, what it's doing to us, what its incentives are. And this is a variant on the tension between the machine and the garden. If anything, it feels like it has cascaded into like a kaleidoscopic phenomenon, perhaps because like, I can't really rely on the person that I'm talking to have enough of a similar experience to me that we could like, that I could say what I just said and have it even be relatable to them, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. And I think mm -hmm. that this has produced forms of culture 
like subcultures are real in a very material sense, just in that we have enough media and like stuff available that we can kind of develop things. We can develop whole lifetimes of experience that other people, if they were in a different strain, they could maybe like try and understand in like a human empathetic way, but like they don't know what it was like to like, you know, I don't know, watch Gundam as a 10 year old. Yeah, and like, sure, what yeah. Then do to you as a person Which or whatever. By, yeah, no, totally. By the way, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you know this. You people have reconstructed, and I mean really reconstructed, entire blocks of Toonami, including commercials, and put them up on yeah. Midnight Run specifically and put them up on youtube and it is one of the most intense it's like almost excruciating the level of nostalgia you feel mm. for like you know our current turn of the century moment especially because it's related to like our childhood specifically but that's just that to say like new types of nostalgia are now possible no, absolutely. And that's what I've been thinking about kind of while we record was just the way that I don't really want to use the word consumerism because I kind of just want to leave that behind as a mode of analysis entirely. But sure. I think that what it's talking about is worth talking about. And that is just the proliferation of goods and types of goods and like Toonami and all that kind of stuff is an example of this has allowed for a proliferation of forms of life and self-understanding, maybe not in a substantial way, like we all live in pretty much the same way, but like what we think about and are exposed to can be different enough to have this like, I guess, like I said, kaleidoscopic sort of array of forms of nostalgia for things that other people weren't even aware existed. And I think that in some way was just like pointing to this, like we said, the machine is instantial now and taken for granted and it's a part of these forms of nostalgia like i'm nostalgic for other times of the machine you know like now yeah, yeah. forms of the machine that to me are like a pastoral idol like if i think about going on like a forum in 2004 i'm like that was escaping from like rome to me mm -hmm. and like the rome now would be you know many of the forms of online connection that I just don't have that much like affective attachment to or like interest in, but I just kind of have to engage in. Yeah. It mirrors yeah. the dichotomy, but it's different in a lot of important ways, I think. But I think that this is sort of like, if you wanted to be a contemporary person with Leo Marx's quest, you would have to then begin thinking about this and the way Especially because now at the very end of this book, it comes together for me with Christopher Lash's The True and Only Heaven in so mm -hmm. many ways of the Dude, way of real. nostalgia, progress, which we did stuff about that on Exhaust. Like we go through the whole book. It's well worth reading if you're interested in this stuff and you end up reading Leo Marx and you want something to read next. Uh, yeah, highly it'd be a good companion. Book. Yeah, it'll be provocative even if you don't agree with it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the way that he treats this as we have a tendency towards an exhilarating like faith in progress, but then a natural accompaniment to that, like a dialectical necessity is a completely static nostalgia for a time which can never change and never really existed, but is now like a place to take refuge from the runaway mm -hmm. train that is progress, which could actually like the exhilaration turns to terror and it feels dangerous. So you naturally need to retreat into this mental construct, mm -hmm. which is nostalgic. 
And then he will go into how these things, perhaps there's a resolution in a living tradition, which is not static, but it carries the past with it into the future and so on. It's interesting and it would be interesting to think of in these terms, but while being two different ideas, I think they have a lot to give to each other in terms of fruitfulness for thinking about this. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to add a really sick Brian Eno quote I came across Please. the other day <laughs> that I think is like, I think about this all the time because like when we're talking, just to sort of put this in, in terms of the podcast, when we're talking about increasing society's energy density, its power density, its ability to do all these things, what we're saying is make the machine go faster in some way. I'm not against that, right? I'm not, not like on its face or anything like that. Obviously, I wouldn't be running this podcast if I was. I think that there are like consequences and things to think about that come out of that are surprising and, and, and gnarly or whatever. So that's where this is all coming from. And the way in which our culture interacts with our industrial systems and then vice versa is, I think, under-acknowledged and something we really need to do serious thinking about. Because the more we can proliferate our access to energy and its use, et cetera, et cetera, I think the more we're going to come up with sophisticated uh, problems that we have to solve. And that's the nature of this. So this Brian Eno quote has been stuck in my head since I read it a few months ago. This is from his book, A Year with Swollen Appendices. Whatever you now find weird, ugly, uncomfortable, and nasty about a new medium will surely become its signature. CD distortion, the jitteriness of digital video, the crap sound of 8-bit, all of these will be cherished and emulated as soon as they can be avoided. It's the sound of failure. So much modern art is the sound of things going out of control, of a medium pushing to its limits and breaking apart. The distorted guitar sound is the sound of something too loud for the medium supposed to carry it. The blue singer with the cracked voice is the sound of an emotional cry too powerful for the throat that releases it. The excitement of grainy film, of bleached out black and white, is the excitement of witnessing events too momentous for the medium assigned to record them. Well, did he write that? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah I think he writes it in the <laughs> 90s. <laughs> That's crazy, um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think like that's, it, it becomes a signature as soon as it can be avoided is I think yeah. crucial. Well, I think what we might be experiencing is this sort of like permanent lag time of the psyche between the president and oh, oh, what's happening. And that's part of the human condition. And I think one thing that we might be able to say about the modern moment is that division becomes more pronounced Obviously, if we can take a look at Virgil and find some sort of consonance with what's going on in the pastoral there, there is some continuity between the ancients and the moderns. However, I think that this gap is the one that is where we start to run into the most difficult and interesting social psychological problems that we have today and even aesthetic problems as brian eno points out because these things are intimately related of course right like our aesthetic world is a manifestation in part of our psychic world and of our culture our shared cultural landscape and so i think where 
Leo Marx goes wrong in pivoting towards politics isn't that I think politics isn't important or that our political engagement with the nature of the machine shouldn't be thought about. It's that he wants an easy exit ramp from the aesthetic problems that he has created by shifting the burden of resolution outside the domain of actual experience. And I think that is the greatest problem with the book. <clears throat> yeah, I would at least say for my part, I don't believe it's possible. Like, I think it's only solvable there or it's not at all. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> yeah. Or like, I don't think you can do anything with it politically if you haven't been able to do anything with, with it psychologically, aesthetically, experientially, if that makes mm. sense. Because in what terms will you be able to think politically if you're stuck in a mode of experience which is incapable of conceiving of anything other than what is currently existing? You know what I mean? This is, yeah, this is Nick Land's major question, right? In Meltdown. Can what's playing you make it to level two? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's, no. I think that's one of the most profound questions of this moment, by the way. I think he deserves a lot of credit, mostly for that essay. He's written some other weird and cool stuff. But I think that question, what is, can what is playing you make it to level two, speaks to volumes to our current experience, both of the machine and of the self. There is a sense that we are trapped within industrial society rather than engaging directly with it or over it. And this kind of brings us back to the transcendentalists. I was thinking about mm. that while reading this, that this is their moment and then the tragic which follows it. That's the beginning of the recognition it's what he said, men become tools of their tools. And then you get the mm -hmm. beginning of an attempt at articulating a society, which like when you're reading Walden and he's talking about life in the town, you're like, it could very well have been written. Like I would have believed this was like from the eighties or something, you know, and this was like mm -hmm. somebody trying to come to grips with like contemporary society because mm -hmm. people still think very much in the terms that he was thinking of the way in which the houses are built Mm -hmm. And the critique of how the houses are built for this sort of function instead of like for like the way in which they create the possibility of a kind of life and prevent other kinds of life from even being possible. And like the sort of the way in which environment structures experience it was all extremely like prescient, I think. And it's all buried in a book that, that most of us, me included, don't really think that much about. There's is one other thing that I thought of just to move away from what I can no longer talk about <laughs> was I think another form of literature that certainly exists for Americans, but it was, it's like transcontinental, I guess. And then there's, you know, it was a lot of Europeans were writing this too. It was like the travel literature where you're escaping mm -hmm. to, but the escape, I guess the way in which the pastoral is rendered as a foreign place, I think has really interesting possibilities for thinking about this because it's not quite the same as just going West or just going to the rural because most of these people are escaping to what they think are older untainted civilizations that are highly artificial, like built up things. 
-hmm. And what they're attempting to find is an alternate means of existing, not in an untutored, like simple or savage way, but in a way like a non-machinic artificiality, you could call it. And I think that there is a lot of things like that. And it's deeply embedded in our contemporary culture through film, like a hundred percent the kind of legacy of those books and that mode of thinking. But like, there's a lot of uh, British and, and European people who ended up going to North Africa and like converting to Islam and talking about what life was like there. And those are pretty much like the last recordings of a world which then did actually die and just no mm -hmm. longer exists in that kind of way in those places. I don't know. And it comes to mind because we now exist in a world that is way more interconnected than it was at that time. Really, anything that Leo Marx talks about kind of predates this sort of hyper-globalist economy that we now live in, just in the sense that it was globalist then, but it's now extremely close as Byung-Chul Han likes to talk about, we've eradicated distance. Mm -hmm. And as we've been talking about, like something like Gundam is possible to be like a formative experience for like an American child, or like you could grow up in like, you know, Florida and the suburbs, but mm -hmm. like be walking around with a Game Boy playing like Final Fantasy, stuff like that. Like Products and forms of culture then start moving around at kind of a rapid pace and breaking through barriers that used to exist. I had a, sorry, I'm just droning on about really weird stuff, but it is what it is. I saw a picture <laughs> of like a Korean idol group, but they were like on an American tour and they were sitting in a restaurant with like glasses of sweet tea and like overweight Southern people around them. <laughs> I was like, they're in like a country buffet looking place. Yeah, but they're it's, a Cracker Barrel. Like, they're in basically a Cracker Barrel, like a place I'm intimately familiar with as a place utterly like disconnected from the world of like, you know, East Asian media culture. But it's like been fully penetrated by like their actual physical existence or whatever. They're just and that's sitting the there. media spectacle of their existence there. Yeah. They're sitting there sipping tea amongst people who have no clue who they are, don't care, you know, but like, to me, it's, there's no turning back from this. Like these things are completely intermixed mm -hmm. and. Well, I think part of what you're gesturing at here is that what we get with the machine isn't in Leo Marx, isn't machine as media producer fully yet. Yeah. But now we live in that world. And, and what does that mean? And that world is highly connected. It's more informational than it was just brute force of energetic power and logistical power then. And I think that's, it's more ephemeral too. And so that's part of what's going on. So I want to add like just two, I sort of want to close on this. I have sort of two ideas. So you're talking about this sort of like escape narrative, right? Mm -hmm. this sort of like pre-artificial culture. I had... A very insane thought while you were saying that and Please. it is it is hp lovecraft as writer of the negative pastoral 
Because right, yeah. all of his adventure stories like sort of end with people finding that thing and it like epistemically destroying them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the natural world being not just like hostile, but like indifferent to humanity, yeah. which is like a different sort of take on it. So there's one thought that people can just like keep in their back pocket. And the other is this. <laughs> One of the things that we talked about when we're talking about the new world and its conception in Leo Marx is sort of the um, the promises, opportunities that come with the dangers of the new world, which is pastoral. It's either garden or dangerous wilderness. We talked about all of that last time, but just in a general sense, that's what's going on, right? So there's a sense of opportunity with that. I think... What's different about the machine is that the machine both opens up new avenues of experience, degrees of freedom and stuff like that, while almost permanently taking other ones away. So it is both hyper liquid on the one hand and then like iron fisted on the other. And I think that toggling is very difficult. And it brings us to greater questions about what the relationship is, what are the human relationship of, of freedom is to the machine. And one of the reasons that nostalgia for the pastoral exists is because the nostalgia is an old one of a type of raw opportunity. And I think you could see this in Leo Marx's reading of The Great Gatsby, where that is almost the reading of the coast that Jay Gatsby undertakes that makes him think he can remake himself. So that's sort of my, what? Even more like sort of insanely remake time. Yeah. Remake time. Yeah. With the idea that these things have happened and cannot thus ever be changed. He's like, no. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, no, I can make it all different. I can make it all better. It's Promethean in this other way. Yeah, um, it's like fantastically Promethean rather yeah. than like if you have a Faulkner character who has basically just is tyrannizing his Haitian slaves and is forcing them to cut down, you know, a Mississippi brush so that he can put in his, you know, 40, 80, 120 acres of sugar or whatever it is back in those days. Like that's a very different like that is Promethean. It's brutal. You know, mm-hmm. but it's Promethean or and it take any of the social protest novels of the 30s and sort of the malevolent Prometheanism of industry titans. And then there are also like novels from that area era that were just like celebrate. Ayn Rand is a great example. Total celebrations of the of the Promethean element and then all sorts of stuff in between. All I'm really saying is that like what Gatsby is doing is like purely at this like psychological will to power social level that is enabled by wealth and machinery that maybe when we'll end it here speaks even more to our current relationship with a highly mediatized machine than I actually thought before I said literally any of what I just said. Yeah, this episode has been an active, like active thinking. So I hope it was listenable, but I yeah, definitely- Sam, this was wild. Thanks for giving us your time, guys. <laughs> This is this is a look at active raw thinking iteratively as it happens. Yeah, no (laughs) doubt. So yeah, that's all I have to say there. Who knows? We may or may not be back with some other stuff. You know, 
but nuclear barbarians will roll on of course we've got some cool stuff in the chamber coming up this year so remember stay sharp stay strong and stay radiant we will see you next time